Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So firstly, I wanted to give a huge thanks to those of you that have supported the show via Patreon. I couldn't do this without you, so thanks again. So we're into the fourth episode of the Qualitative Research series, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Victoria Clark about thematic analysis. Victoria is an Associate Professor in Qualitative and Critical Psychology at the University of the West of England. She teaches and conducts research in the intersecting areas of qualitative and critical psychology, sexuality and gender, family and relationships, and appearance and embodiment. And together with her longtime co-author and collaborator, Virginia Brown, Victoria has been central in developing, explicating, and disseminating qualitative research methods, in particular thematic analysis. The immense impact that Victoria and Virginia have had on qualitative methodological scholarship is evidenced by the fact that their original 2006 paper on TA has received over 100,000 Google Scholar citations, which is truly incredible. Victoria's books include the award-winning textbook titled Successful Qualitative Research and her new book titled Thematic Analysis, A Practical Guide, both of which she co-authored with Virginia. And you can pre-order your copy by visiting Sage the Publisher's website or check out the link in the show notes. So in this episode we speak about the history of reflexive thematic analysis, or TA. Thematic analysis as being method-ish, meaning it sits between both method and methodology. For example, it has a well-defined set of methods, but also has depth in how these methods are conceptualised and operationalised, including the research values and reflexivity needed to use them, meaning that thematic analysis also has characteristics of a methodology. We talk about that as TA isn't welded to a particular theory or onto epistemological perspective, that this is in fact a feature which offers researchers theoretical flexibility and utility rather than a bug, which could limit or bog down those wanting to embark on qualitative inquiry. We talk about reflexivity and how this value is nurtured within reflexive TA, and we discuss some of the main criticisms and misconceptions of TA. We talk about the annoying notion of data saturation and its links to positivism, and how to respond to peer reviewers' equally annoying requests to demonstrate the definite, final, and ultimate position of data saturation. And Victoria has written a paper about this, and I've linked this in the show notes. We talk about presenting participant demographic information as a way to help readers of qualitative research locate the findings within their own realities and judge the study's transferability to their individual social contexts. And I've linked some papers by Janice Morse on this topic in the show notes. Finally, Victoria shares her thoughts on post-qualitative research which, amongst other things, rejects systematic and somewhat repeatable qualitative methods, such as those that sit within TA. 
and to give you a heads up that in the penultimate episode in the series, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jenny Setchell about post-qualitative research. So this was just another incredibly enjoyable conversation of the qualitative series. Victoria really puts voice, passion and argument behind reflexive TA, which I think has at times been unfairly portrayed as a-theoretical by methodological purists. As Victoria and Virginia make clear in their paper, can I use TA? Should I use TA? Should I not use TA? Which I've linked in the show notes. The pursuit of the perfect qualitative approach may be seen as a hallowed method's quest. The broad church of qualitative research calls for methods and methodological pluralism to suit the different questions, contexts and resources that qualitative researchers have. So I bring you Dr. Victoria Clark. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So there couldn't be a a qualitative podcast series without having you representing thematic analysis. It would be (laughs) <laughs> wouldn't really be a qualitative research podcast series. So I'm delighted that you've been able to speak with me today. I'm very glad to be here and to represent myself and um, Ginny. And I'll say that her name is pronounced Brown and not Braun, as most people, including myself, mispronounce it regularly. So that's a top tip <laughs> for anyone who's ever come to a talk. I always mention how to pronounce her name correctly. Print, okay, Brown. I'm going to put that in the show notes. Yep. As a... Top tip. <laughs> So perhaps you could introduce yourself, your academic background and your journey into thematic analysis. Um, Oh gosh, where to start? So I did my PhD at Loughborough University um, in the late 1990s and very early 2000s. And at that point in time, Loughborough was kind of centre, oh I hate that terminology, centre of excellence, but I suppose it was a centre of excellence for... um, discursive psychology and discourse analysis in particular. So my training was very much within critical qualitative approaches to research. And I didn't appreciate at the time, because if you're doing a PhD, you kind of think whatever you're doing is normal, right? And it's what everyone else is doing. But it was a PhD experience that was very, very methodologically rich and embedded we spent an awful lot of time talking about methodological issues and we were surrounded by people who spent an awful lot of their time writing about those issues and so felt very passionately about them. And so when I finished my PhD, I thought I'd had a normal PhD experience that everyone spends an awful lot of time surrounded by experts in qualitative methodology, debating vigorously methodological matters. And when I sort of got acquainted with the rest of academia, I discovered that that isn't the case and that was quite exceptional. And in fact, we were incredibly lucky and privileged to have the experience that we Mm. did. And it's something that Ginny and I have both reflected on and written about. And something that we've noticed is that pretty much all of our peers write methodological texts and papers So it was clearly a a breeding ground for methodological scholars as well as people doing empirical research. Um, And then I 
got a job as a lecturer at UE, started teaching because I had some background in qualitative methods. I was like, oh, yes, you can teach qualitative methods, um, which I was very happy to do, not realising that generally people don't like teaching methods. They find it scary and they don't want to do it. So if someone comes along with any degree of enthusiasm, it's like, yay, do it. And teaching things like thematic analysis to um, students, but without any sort of one piece of reading that we could give them. We were sort of making it up as we were going along. Hmm. And then Ginny was on sabbatical in the UK at UE. And we thought, well, why don't we write a paper on thematic analysis? Because then we can give it to our students. Then they've got something to read because there's nothing really that's written about it that's accessible and that reflects kind of our way of thinking about qualitative research, which is very qualitative, sort of not just techniques, but also values. But I think at the time we weren't able to articulate that. We were thinking about people who got it and people who didn't get it. And so we were quite rude and judgmental, I think. Um, and so we wrote a paper. We were, we're both critical sexuality and gender scholars we are used to our work having very little impact on the world, um, talking to small audiences of like-minded people. So to write a paper that now has over 100,000 Google Scholar citations was just, whoa, um, not at all what we were expecting or anticipating. We basically wrote it for ourselves to give it to our students. And I can remember sitting in a pub with some friends who were visiting from Canada and talking about the fact the paper had a hundred citations and how amazing that was. So we sort of, I mean, Ginny's talked about a keynote she gave at a conference a few years ago that we became sort of accidental methodological scholars. We kind of wrote this paper for our students to articulate a set of values and a way of doing TA. We didn't intend it to become this big thing that it's become so that's sort of taken us by surprise and we've been pulled into methodological scholarship through writing that one paper so that's sort of how we got to where we got to and we've got, we've switched from sort of being in the beating heart of critical psychology with lots of other critical psychology scholars to sitting in a sort of more mainstream space and having very different conversations about qualitative research so we were having conversations that people very embedded in qualitative research have. And now we're having conversations about the first principles of qualitative research. So sort of where we find ourselves now and where we started, quite different. But it's immensely rewarding to do work that people read, but given that that wasn't <laughs> part of my academic career for quite a while. It's it's nice that people, you know, drop you an email to say, oh, that paper was so useful for my master's project. And like, wow, I've done something and it's been helpful. And that's really nice. So for me, you two are the Glazer and Strauss of TA. <laughs> and so what is the, so I just, your names are synonymous with TA. And I don't know that the history, did it exist before the two of you found each other? It's really hard to tell what the history is because 
it's it's been around for a really long time. So as far as we can tell, people have been using the term for at least a century. But what they mean by it varies hugely. So we've sort of seen it, we've been able to sort of trace it back to various different disciplines, the term thematic analysis. So it's been around for a long time. Um, I think the sort of best guess is that it evolved from content analysis. And again, the history of content analysis is sort of complex and murky because some people say there's always been qualitative approaches and other people say actually they were a later kind of evolution. What we can see is there's a strong sort of intertwining of content analysis and thematic analysis and the term thematic analysis and themes has been used in relation to content analysis for a long time. So we think somehow it evolved from that form of practice. We've I think the earliest we've got is the sort of 80s for for works that looks recognisable as, as what people do today when they do thematic analysis. We found examples going back to the 80s and then procedures started to be published in the 90s. In the 90s, there were lots of different approaches published. So people in different disciplines, in different countries were developing different approaches to TA and they all look quite different. So I think that's one of the big misunderstandings about TA, that it is a method, when in actual fact, we quite like the term um, that Fugard and Potts have used, family of methods, in the sense that it's this cluster of methods that have things in common, but yeah. can be quite different. And like families can fall out and fight viciously at times. I think Anthony Bryant used the exact same metaphor about grounded theory across the spectrum of constructivist, classic, feminist, GT, that there's a set of techniques or methods which bring them at these commonalities amongst these somewhat disparate or different approaches. Yeah, yeah. I think we try to sort of drill down and see, well, what do they have in common? Well, they have this concept of a theme, but then you drill down into what a theme is and there's different understandings of that. They have this concept of coding, but you drill down and they mean different things by that. There seems to be general agreement that it's a method rather than a methodology. So it doesn't have theory built in in the same way that grounded theory might or mm. interpretive phenomenological analysis might or discourse analysis or narrative analysis might. But all methods reflect research values. So if you start to think about why certain coding practices are advocated, you can see that underlying that are particular values. So I, I think we've come to the point of describing a TA as sort of a method-ish, because it's sort of a method, but it sort of has some of the features of a methodology, but it isn't a full methodology because it's you have to bring in elements to the research process yourself. You have to decide what your philosophical and theoretical assumptions are that guide your use of it. But I guess for that, that's the utility of it, that it's that it can be informed by so many different theoretical perspectives or, I suppose, epistemologies, if you like, that it, it's so adaptable, which is why you've got your 100,000 citations, is that it can be used without... No, you, it can be used with or without any theoretical perspective that you, you wish to. 
Yeah, it's sort of its strength and weakness in yeah. a way because it means that people use it without, well, they think they're using it without theory, but obviously, I mean, I'm, I like to think of theory as something we practice, something we do. It's not this sort of abstract, long words, very complicated thing that people can argue about and sound very intelligent. Theory are things that we do, that we practice. So when we do analysis, we're making particular assumptions about what language represents, what language gives us access to. So we're doing theory, even if we aren't aware that we're doing theory. So I think Theory is always there in TA. It's just whether or not people are owning the theoretical assumptions yeah. that they're making, or whether they're just making them without acknowledging or realizing that they're making them. But so that's the sort of downfall that it can be practiced badly without people giving overt consideration to the theoretical assumptions that they're making. But then that's also the strength, the flexibility that it can be used in such a wide variety of ways. I mean, I things I find really exciting that. Obviously, I did. Ginny and I have written a book recently on thematic analysis, which is um, hopefully coming out in October, all things being well. And we did a lot of reading for that and did a lot of, you know, what people have been doing. And, you know, seeing people talk about feminist TA was really exciting and queer theory TA and, and doing lots of really interesting things like people combining TA with narrative approaches to produce these kind of hybrid methods where you're looking at both themes and narrative structure and people combining TA and discursive approaches. So it's, it's flexibility means people can do all kinds of interesting things with it, which, which I quite enjoy because it has that sort of bricolage kind of element to it, that creativity of kind of making things up as you go along, but obviously in a very thoughtful and considered kind of way to, to do what you want to do rather than rigidly following prescriptions like there's sort of a recipe book that you have to follow, that you have to get right. And did you and Virginia develop the methods or the methodology or what was the, or did you just explicate aspects that were there from the 80s? So, or you brought these different things together and kind of packaged them up? Is it the case that you've just drawn upon these different iterations which seem to belong to this family and created a more cohesive family unit of methods? I can remember. <laughs> we we wrote it in the, the house that, that Ginny was kind of living in and we took turns to type and pace. And I can remember pacing. Could we gone to the library and gotten all the books we could find that mentioned TA and reading them and saying, well, oh, they, don't, they don't get it, they don't get it. So what we were trying to do was articulate an approach to TA that had some of the features that other approaches have. So ending up with a set of themes, doing some coding, but that reflected what we understand to be broadly as qualitative research values. Um, so emphasizing researcher subjectivity as a resource for research rather than a kind of threat to be controlled including reflexivity, so reflecting on our practice, thinking about what it is we're doing and why. So including qualitative research values at the heart of the method. So we built on what we've been doing in teaching, what we've been um, telling students to do in our sort of made-up approach to thematic analysis, but we also had reflection on what we think constitutes good kind of research practice, that what we should be doing. And 
I think the thing that we're always trying to reflect on is what is it that we're actually doing when we do X, Y, or Z? So we can really try and break it down and explain what it is you're doing. Because I think a lot of qualitative research methodological scholarship sort of has a mystical element to it. Someone created a great meme on Twitter using the the Schitt's Creek um, um, fold it in. I think was it fold in the cheese? Yeah, it was. Yeah, there yeah, was, there yeah, was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> code it, just code it, just code it, which I think just captures the idea that if you know what coding is, you kind of, you just, well, just code it. Well, how? Well, just code, you know, so this, we're trying to, yeah, make that kind of conversation redundant. I think, well, what does it actually mean? What are you actually doing? What does it actually look like? And so I think that's what we were trying to articulate in our approach. So what does this actually involve? What does this actually look like? And we're always reflecting on the assumptions that we made. So as soon as this paper became quite popular and well-read, we start to think, well, well, we didn't actually mean, we didn't actually mean that. You know, one <laughs> thing that we, we described the phase, the first phase of theme development as searching for themes. We didn't actually mean that the themes are sort of in the data and you're looking yeah, for them. Kind of positivist, objectivist view. Yeah. But obviously it's been interpreted in that way, right? So... So that's why we've sort of been in this reappraisal phase where we've been writing lots of things where we've sort of been trying to explain what our assumptions were and where we didn't fully articulate our assumptions. And and we've sort of renamed the six phases in our most recent publications to try and articulate more clearly what our values are. I mean, because people accuse us of being methodologists and proceduralists and technocrats and all that. And we're not trying to do that. We're trying to strike a balance between trying to make qualitative research accessible for people who've got nothing, who haven't got good training, who haven't had the luxury of the training that we had, breaking it down, kind of demystifying, explaining what's going on, while also arguing that you know, don't get obsessed with procedures. They're not, you know, they're not the good stuff. The good stuff is your reflexivity, your subjectivity, your interpretation. That's that's where the good stuff is. But that seems to be quite a complex message to carry off. Yeah, we want to demystify, but we don't want to proceduralize, if that makes sense. And what about what's within the gaze of TA, or at least the the outcome? So. Grounded theorists talk about finding a basic social process or constructing an explanatory theory that describes a kind of psychological process. IPA or phenomenologists look to understand the lived experience. Is it the same? Is it the case with TA that the flexibility in the methods is the same as the flexibility in outcome? That you can look for all of those things. You can either look for lived experience or social processes or or something else. Yes, I mean I think. The sort of known limits that we've reflected on are you can't look at what we've sort of gloss as language practice. So the kind of things that discursive psychologists and conversation analysts would be interested in. You can't do that with TA because it doesn't give you the kind of technical mm. resources that you'd need for that. And you can't do some of the work that you can do with narrative approaches where you're looking at things like narrative structure, because again, it doesn't give you the resources for doing that. But in terms of all the other things you can do with qualitative methods. There's, you can do things with 
TA that you can do with grounded theory that you can do with IPA, that it has a really broad reach in terms of the phenomena that it's interested in. So that again requires thought and question, you know, why am I using this approach and not that approach? And there isn't always a clear or obvious answer as to why. There isn't necessarily a sort of an ideal one method that you're trying to get at. So I think there's lot there's lots of overlap in TA and other methods. And we've written a paper specifically to kind of address that and try and articulate. That's the 2020 counselling psychotherapy research? Yeah. Yeah, that was a lovely paper. Yeah, the, sh- the should I, could yeah. I, whatever it's called. <laughs> the one with the really long title. Yeah, because we're trying to sort of unpack because I think I, one thing I encounter an awful lot is the idea that if students are doing phenomenological research and they should be doing IPA and they need to explain why they've decided to do TA. And I, I'm, I'm floored by that because TA was used as a phenomenological method before IPA sort of came on the scene. So it has a quite a long history as a phenomenological method. So I, I don't understand why IPA is the sort of you must be doing it if you're doing phenomenology. It's a sort of an odd rationale and way of thinking to me. I think as long as you've got a good rationale for what you're doing, that, that's fine. I don't think you need to. Um, I think in that paper we talked about the hallowed method mm, quest, yeah. the idea that there is this ideal method that you'll find this perfect one method for your project and you'll defeat all the um, others and come to this kind of perfect method. But I don't think that's the case, that there are projects where you could have used any one two, three, four different methods. You just need to have a rationale for why you've used the one that you've used. And also that in practice, methods can look quite similar. They can lead to similar outcomes. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. And I think sometimes researchers think differently. So one of my students who had her Viva recently, when we were kind of doing the prep for the Viva I said to her, you really think like a grounded theorist. And she does. She thinks in terms of kind of models and cycles. And I think I've noticed that, that some people seem to think in ways that that map onto particular methods. And I don't think, I mean, this might be an odd thing to say for someone who's associated with a method, but I don't think the particular method matters that much. It's the sensibility that you bring to the process and how you're engaging with your data and those things matter far more. So I'm going to just signpost that paper because it was so great that, and it's, I'll I'll link it in the show notes to can I use TA, should I use TA, should I not use TA, comparative reflexive to meta-analysis and other pattern-based qualitative analytical approaches. It was a really useful paper and I, I hadn't seen you or anyone compare TA with IPA or GT or kind of discourse analysis or content analysis. I think I think that was in there too. And it was it was they're the questions that probably me and many people have had. Well, where do they lie in the kind of landscape of qualitative methodologies? Yeah, I think because methods have different histories, don't they? And they come from different disciplines. And then over time, and particularly if they become well known, that gets lost. And so students come to a method not knowing its history and its context. And I think that that can be quite important because it tells you 
what people were trying to achieve with that method, what they would, you know, so I always think with um, framework um, analysis, for example, developed for such a specific purpose for applied policy research where they get pots of money, they get this very specific question, they know exactly what they need to find out. So it might be the barriers to implementing a particular policy successfully. They've got a year or six months to turn around a piece of research. And so they needed a method that worked for that very particular context of it's got to be efficient. It's got to work for a team. It's got to work for a team that includes people that have never done qualitative research. It's got to have some structure to it because we kind of know what we need to know. But then framework gets divorced from that history, those origins, and becomes just another method. But the procedures are so wedded to those origins that you kind of need to understand them to understand the method and what it does and its limitations and its assumptions and so on. So I do think it is important to understand something about the history of methods and how they came about and how they've evolved, because they tell you something about what the thinking was behind, you know, why do it this way rather than that way? So that always strikes me as is quite important. So I, I do get a bit frustrated when approaches like grounded theory get divorced from their, their sort of origins. Like grounded theory was solving a very specific problem in sociology. And that's still evident in how grounded theory is practiced. But if you don't understand what it was doing and the history and the origin, I, I wonder that's how we end up with lots of research that looks exactly the same. That's how we end up with IPA that looks like TA on small samples, grounded theory that looks like TA, you know, because that sensitivity to the history of the method and what it's trying to achieve is, is kind of, is missing. So although methods aren't important in the sense of procedures don't guarantee good outcomes, I think it's nonetheless important to understand something about the thinking behind a method to help you understand what it is you're trying to achieve if you're engaging with it. And one thing I noticed in that, that 2020, the, the can I, should I paper, is that you refer to it as reflexive TA. And I wasn't sure, that wasn't, you, you didn't describe it as that in the, first, in the early papers. Is that something that it was always reflexive, but you thought, well, emphasize that, or you have changed and you know, you, you've, it's more apparent now in, in the approach? I think it always was that. That was certainly integral to our thinking, but we weren't aware that how integral that was, if that makes sense. We weren't aware that that was a distinctive way of thinking about qualitative research. And so I think with, I think the first paper that we started to engage in this kind of process of reflection was called Reflecting on Reflexive TA back in 2019, we started to articulate those assumptions to understand that our approach existed alongside lots of different other approaches. And because we see, we saw people and we still see people an awful lot kind of mashing up all these different approaches that are mm. extraordinarily incompatible, you know, see endless papers saying you know we combined this and this i'm like well how how yeah I, i'm just going to bring in my own experience as a supervisor for undergrad and postgrad one of the things that students 
do, particularly the undergrads, is that so they can't do full-blown grounded theory because it's just too big and too takes too, too much time. So what they end up doing is saying, well, I we, you know, we've combined TA with GT and there's no description about how those two, I mean, they, they don't know how they combine them. They just thought I should say GT because that sounds kind of good and TA, the kind of methods and technique. But you're right, the minute you pretty much join those two approaches, whatever it might be, there needs to be a you know, an understanding of how those things are joined and if they're joinable or compatible at all. Yeah, and there's, there is in fact a whole hybrid method called thematic coding that exists that already does that work for you. And they're all different as well, which to add to the confusing confusion. So there's, there's lots of different versions of thematic coding that are basically using grounded theory coding techniques to do thematic analysis, but they're all very different. So when we tried to kind of map out all the different types of TA out there, we we had sort of thematic coding as, as one of them, but again, very different. So yeah, so I think when you're combining different approaches, you need to have an understanding of how they're different and how you're combining them. So we talk about in our book, we talk about being knowing in the sense of you're doing things deliberatively, you're doing things with theoretical and conceptual awareness of how these approaches are similar and how they're different. And you're able to kind of articulate that for readers. But I think that's quite a hard ask, particularly for for students, because they've got so much to kind of take on board when they're learning qualitative research. And that understandably, they tend to focus on the techniques rather than the more conceptual and philosophical stuff, because that's kind of scary. And we all sort of, you know, myself included, retreat from <laughs> in them. In our book glossary, we have a, so in our TA book, we have a glossary of terms. And for a really long time, the definition of post-structuralism was Ginny will write this. (laughs) To do. Because I was, yeah, because I was too scared to write it myself. (laughs) So I just want to emphasize that theory is, we make it scary, right? We make it difficult. We make it complex. We make it hard. I think academics as a, profession are prone to a bit of ego and narcissism and showing off and I think theory is a big playground for showing off and massaging academic egos and it would be so much better if we could think of theory as something practical that enables us to do things and that what we're reflecting on is what we're doing and what assumptions we're making and then hopefully it'd be a bit we'd all be a bit less scared by it and we can engage with it more. So the other thing which you're brilliant at doing is long threads on Twitter. <laughs> Who needs a book? I'd, I'd scrap the book and just, you know, just do great big fat threads of Twitter because you've had some really interesting threads on things like saturation or sufficiency was one that caught my eye. Um, one was around participant demographics and whether we should present that kind of background info. Mm. And there was a third about, was it about writing a PhD thesis? Was yeah, that right? yeah. 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 So two, which I definitely want to explore with you. One was the presenting participant background demographics and kind of ages and gender, mm. that kind of stuff. Because I know a while ago, was it qualitative health research, the journal would no longer publish that background demographics. I thought uh, an editorial by... Janet Morse, I thought I, oh, I could be wrong. I'll try okay. and link it in the show notes. If, if I, I know some, I'm pretty sure she did or the journal did. But what was the? Do you want to 
just describe what the thread, the whole thread, but what your position was and how it started. And I mean, it came about from encountering um, reluctance among students and colleagues for for collecting demographic data for and presenting that in research and for thinking that that's quite sensitive or delicate or intrusive. But I think the essence of what bothers me about not collecting that information, in my discipline of psychology, we have spent a very long time researching what's often referred to as the usual suspect. So people who are white, middle class, straight, non-disabled, but presenting the knowledge generated from those participants as knowledge of all people. And so their whiteness, their privilege gets invisibilized and isn't seen. And I think the least we can do is acknowledge when we're telling stories or relating experiences that are about whiteness. And so that's where I come from on the question of collecting demographic data. I was struck by some of the responses to that thread that people were assuming I meant it as an analytic variable, but it isn't necessarily. It's more about contextualizing information. So in various, I mean, I love qualitative quality criteria. Obviously, they have got lots of problems in them, but they're useful with thinking tools. And so Elliot et al. talk about situating the sample. And I really like that because what you ideally want in a good method or methodology section is some rich contextualization of who it is you've spoken to in qualitative research. You want a sense of, you know, what what's the context of these participants? You know, what stories am I able to legitimately tell about this group of people? And as someone who's white and middle class, I'm always mindful that I'm not always conscious of how and when race is relevant. I don't always see it because I've been socialized not to see it. So to not collect demographic data around race and ethnicity, to not mention that as relevant. I mean, obviously there will be times when it's not appropriate and all the rest of it, but as a general practice, that seems really important to me to be able to say something about who I've spoken to, their context, to to situate them. Yeah. To Lucy Yardley talks about displaying sensitivity to context, and I think that's one of the ways that you can do that. To be able to reflect on the kind of limitations of of the stories that you've told, that to me seems really important. There seems to be a reluctance to collect that data, and I can't get to that get to the bottom of what that reluctance is about. It's almost as if it's rude to acknowledge race and ethnicity, but I, I don't think it is. I think it's it feels problematic to not talk about it. So I, I sort of have, it was more a, I mean, sometimes my Twitter threads are I'm sharing information and sometimes they're, I, I seem to think about this differently from how other people think about it. So what's going on here? What am I missing? What am I not seeing? And so that thread was very much a sort of a a plea for, for information and thoughts and reflection because, yeah, I seem to be out of step with 
a lot of how other people are kind of practicing qualitative research. But I mean, one of the reasons for me to have that information, and, and I don't know about race, but just the, the general demographics of the sample, occupation or some background info, whatever whatever the, the issue that you're, you're researching is, is it allows the reader to begin to locate and, and judge the transferability themselves. So if participant seven is a you know 34-year-old, I don't know, white male from London or whatever it might be, it, it gives you some some insight as a reader to it to judge, well, you know, and yes, you haven't got the whole story of that, the whole kind of biography of that individual, but you've got perhaps some information which lets potentially lets you make use of that evidence differently or better or judge its salience to your your own reality or your own practice or your own work setting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, it's part of trying to, you know, because research papers can seem quite flat and it's part of trying to bring people alive in a way and convey some of the, I mean, one of the, I mean, if you're nosy like me, Qualitative research is great because you get to meet people who've had experiences that you haven't had and you get to take a dive into different experiential realities, which I find fascinating. And, you know, the encounter that you have with a participant is so rich and so complex and so at times incredibly. I mean, the last interviews I did were on embryo donation where people had had a child through um, a donated embryo. That I cried in every interview I did. They were so moving, those interviews. And how do you sort of bring alive some of that, the richness of that encounter? And I know demographic data is kind of impoverished, but it, it gives you, like you were saying, it gives you a little sense of, of who these people were, what their stories were. And I have to say as well, I've never, never, ever had a reviewer of a paper say, please remove some of this demographic data. They always want more. They always want to know more. So reviewers seem fairly of one mind on this, that demographic data is a good thing, um, that it's important to report it, that it's important to contextualise the data that you've collected from people. Yeah, I think Janet Morse's position was confidentiality. I think that was the journal's concern, which... Which I obviously, which of course, I, 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 you know, we all should respect it, and we're bound to kind of respect. But I just wonder if, if you're publishing, uh, you know, I guess it's the the locality of the study that, uh, I mean, you you can present this information in a way which is going to be pretty hard to compromise anyone's confidentiality, and we're not, like we said, not necessarily talking about their address or or their shoe size, but rather some basic general demographics which you judge to be pertinent to the research problem or, or area yeah and i don't have a problem with anonymizing demographics we certainly needed to do that in the embryo donation study because it was such a specific population that you can do things like and i've done this on several studies like change the gender of people's children or change the children's ages or the number of children because it's not it's not hugely relevant that they have two boys rather than two girls or a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old. It's not important for the research, but it can potentially identify them. So you can anonymize those details and still give contextual information while preserving 
people with anonymity. So I always think there's always a balance to be struck. And I think participant anonymity has to be the main concern. But yeah, I think there are there are workarounds. You know, you can compile the demographic data in a table. So you're kind of yeah. aggregating it. Kind of means that and, that yeah. is very different from a table where you've got participant name age. That approach can be problematic because I've more than once come across a study where I thought, ah, yeah, I know them and I know them because there's been enough information presented to identify people. So I do think you need to be careful, but yeah, there's definitely a balance to be struck. And the other big long Twitter thread, which probably people are still contributing to is this notion of data saturation or theoretical saturation or theoretical sufficiency. I mean, that's just the, that's just like a swampy mess of when to stop doing data collection analysis and what do the reviewers say and how do you show whether you've reached a point of saturation? Does the point of saturation even exist? How do you know when you've got it? All those sorts of things. And I really don't like it as an, as a term. I just, often you get reviewers saying, well, how do you know you reached it? Demonstrate it. And the truth is you're never really saturated that you're only ever kind of sufficient. There's only enough evidence or enough data to, to provide a somewhat compelling argument, if you like, for your theoretical claims. Yeah, I love Ian Day's phrase in his book on grounded theory, which is just fabulous. And I think everyone doing grounded theory should read that it's an unfortunate metaphor because it really is an unfortunate metaphor. It doesn't work for anything other than positivism because as soon as you bring interpretation into research, then there's no finite meaning. There's always room scope for new understandings. The main problem with saturation for reflexive TA is you don't know what your analysis is until you've done it. So how can you judge that your data is saturated before you've analysed it? That's the sort of fundamental problem that you can't sort of, there's no workaround for because mm. lots of approaches to TA kind of start with themes so they kind of know what they're looking for and then they coding is a process of sort of allocating the data to these themes you predetermined that's kind of content analysis kind of isn't it yeah so it is very mm. close to content analysis so you you can say with some confidence well you can you can sort of say with some confidence there was no new information coming up because you kind of know what you're looking for. And there's lots of what Ginny and I called saturation experiment papers where they try and operationalize saturation and try and give definitive guidance on how many interviews or focus groups are enough to achieve kind of saturation, but there's loads of problems um, in those. But with reflexive TA, because you're doing your coding and developing your themes from your coding, and we really emphasize that it's depth of engagement that's important, that it's taking time, spending time with your data, thinking about it, putting it down, going away, having a thought, coming back to it, that gives you kind of new understandings, new insights that you can't possibly know from a sketchy sort of superficial listening to data when you're collecting it, that you, there's no because you, how do you know there's no new information? Because you haven't analysed it yet. The, the, you know, the information comes from interpretative practice. It doesn't. It's not sort of inherent in the data. Yeah. 
So it just, it just for reflexive TA, it just doesn't work. It, yeah. I mean, that's the position we took in the paper that we've written about it is, yeah, it just doesn't work. There's no way to retrieve it or redeem it. And do you have a really nice, easy rebuttal to reviewers that I can just, we can just copy and paste it because, and no one's told the reviewers that because it's almost always mm. asked about and, and, and I often come back and have to argue or put Ian Day's theoretical sufficiency kind of position and, and say, you know, this is the position of the, of the study is that we, we never know whether you reach saturation. This is how it went. So I just wonder, what do, what do you say when a, when a reviewer says, did you reach saturation? How did you know you've got it? How, how did you know you reached it? What, what should we all say? Well, I have a fairly solid strategy, but it involves an awful lot of work. And it's, I've written a paper, I've written a book about this, and I can't contradict what I say in my methodological scholarship. So, you know, having written a quality textbook and having written various papers, they're very helpful in responding to reviewers because I say, well, look, you know, this is the position I've taken and I can't possibly contradict myself in this paper. But obviously that's a huge lot of work. So, and I think, I mean, I have had people say to me, well, I've told them this, you know, I've I've cited your paper or I've mentioned this or I've mentioned these sources, but they've come back with other sources that say different. So I think if a reviewer is really determined to hammer home their point of view, you know, what can you do? Because there's all, you know, qualitative research is so messy and so complex, there's always going to be a paper that can kind of support a particular point of view. Although I really like, and I apologise if I'm pronouncing her name incorrectly, Lara Varpio and colleagues wrote a paper where they take saturation, thematic emergence, I'm not going to remember the other two concepts, member checking, I'm not going to remember the fourth one. And they look at these concepts, which are so kind of weighty in qualitative research. They sort of have this status of unquestioned practice and they show how these are a hangover from positivism of trying to build credibility for qualitative work in fields dominated by positivism and how they don't have much value when we kind of get rid of the positivism so i'd really recommend that paper i think it's fantastic i can give you the, yeah, the details of it i think it's called shedding the cobra effect and i i okay. I, I treated myself to some reading <laughs> not for any purpose, not for writing a lecture, not for revising a paper. I gave myself a day to do some reading and I read that paper and it was so helpful for our... Reading for pleasure. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> insane. You would think it would be part of our jobs, but it's not. But that was really helpful for articulating the assumptions embedded in those concepts because I think people know the headlines, but they don't know the details. So lots of people know, oh, yes, you should saturate. That's how you determine sample size in qualitative research. But they don't know the history of that term, where it's come from, how it came about, how it's evolved, the assumptions that it makes. And once you start to get into those, things look very different. They look more complex, more messy, and they don't work in some ways. And I mean, that again goes back to the point I made earlier about, you know, knowing the history. If you know saturation came from grounded theory, from theoretical saturation you know that theoretical saturation means something quite different from data saturation or information redundancy 
you know that it's evolved in many ways. You know that there are these discussions around theoretical saturation and the influence of positivism on it. And, you know, as we've been talking about Ian Day's reformulation as theoretical sufficiency, if you know all that history, things look quite different. But I'm always mindful, you know, if you're a student starting out, you need... <laughs> There's nothing solid to grip onto. It's all... Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, where do you start? You know. And with the member checking, I'm quite interesting because I uh, member checking to me would be, I guess you can see it in a few ways. What, of course, being qualitative research, but you, you know, the idea of sending transcripts out, or even, or even with findings, you know, drawing findings with participants and get, getting them to participate in this construction would seem totally consistent with a kind of participatory approach. Or before you you kind of dive into analysis or coding, to ask them. You're happy that this kind of represents your views, and is there anything else you want to add to it? I, it to me, it just seems being being, being very sensitive to to mm. wanting to to give them every opportunity to contribute to to the subsequent findings. I think. I mean, it has its place, but I think because my history is sort of discursive psychology and critical psychology, it's sort of in those approaches, you're not aiming to produce analyses that would be recognisable to participants as representations of their experience. So sort of member checking doesn't make sense because you're not trying to represent their experience in ways that might be familiar to them, that might make sense to them. You're using sort of this very technical body of, 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 of language and terminology to kind of look at language practice. So member checking doesn't sort of make any sense. But then if you take some of those assumptions and apply them to qualitative research more broadly, member checking only makes sense if you're trying to represent people's experiences in ways they'd recognize. And often you're not doing that in qualitative research because you're bringing your interpretive resources to bear as researcher. So it, it might not make sense to participants and also when you're doing any kind of thematic work, you're aggregating across experience. And so it might not resonate much with some participants and it might resonate with others. And then there are all the kind of practical issues about, you know, it's a burden, it's a big time commitment. Um, what if you do if you upset people? What if they're angry? What if you disagree with their feedback? It's, you know, it becomes a bit of an ethical minefield. So I think it has a place for sure, but as a default practice for qualitative research, I don't I don't think it it works or it's appropriate because it makes assumptions that don't map onto lots of different qualitative approaches. And sometimes the ethics committees require it, don't they? So they would sometimes say, you know, it's important for participants to almost clear, give the green light to the transcript before you end up analysing it. So there seem it seems to have found its way into ethical committees expectations too. Yeah, I think in health research, particularly, um, there's an emphasis on patient involvement, which I think, you know, as a patient, you think this is a good thing, right? But um, yeah, I, as a universal, I mean, that's the point, really, that, that, that qualitative research is so diverse. There's so many different forms of practice that these more kind of generic, kind of broader headline concepts only work for very particular approaches and it's kind of understanding what is it that I'm doing what assumptions am I making and does this concept work for me 
within you know what I'm doing and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't so I think our my big argument would always be for more more knowing practice of qualitative research more reflexivity more understanding what it is you're doing and why you're doing it understanding the history of what you're what it is you're doing and, and where the concepts you're using have come from and I think we see better qualitative research if we see more knowing practice but you know we need better training we need better methodological scholarship methodological scholars need to get better at owning their assumptions I I sort of despair of qualitative research that says qualitative methodological scholarship that says things like you know qualitative research is about the study of experience it's like well yeah some of it is but not all of it is you're making an assumption there and you need to own that assumption um so I think there's a lot that needs to happen for qualitative research to get better and how how that's going to happen I don't know I mean we're certainly trying in the things that we write but so what do you say when someone says so Victoria what is qualitative research all about it's really hard, isn't it? I think the best I can say is that it's about meaning, that it's about an interest in meaning, in human meaning making or social meaning making, that it's about meaning. Because some of it's about experience, but it's not all about experience. I think because because of that discursive training, Ginny and I were always very mindful of that other strand of qualitative inquiry that focuses on language and discourse and narrative that doesn't fit in with that framing of qualitative research as being about participants and lived experience and so on. So meaning to me seems like a reasonably good term that just about captures all the different forms of qualitative research practice. So now on that topic of where qualitative research is and where it could go, I'd be interested to have your views on post-qualitative inquiry. So I'm doing an episode towards the end of the series with Jenny Setchell on, on this. And it's an area that I didn't know too much about actually up until I don't know, a month or two ago. And having read a bit more about it, it's boggling my mind a bit and, and creating some kind of strong psychological and emotional experiences. <laughs> um, so I'd be really interested to hear you know, you've been getting embedded in quality research for so long, but also really such a, I mean, TA is just omnipresent within qual research. <laughs> And it would strike me that destroying everything in its path. It would strike me that PQI is kind of railing against qual approaches like TA. That that's the there you're in the kind of sights and the target of criticism. And what you think about that, and whether you feel like it is a criticism towards TA and the work that you've been doing with Virginia. I think. I mean, so I've read some post-qualitative stuff, um, not huge amounts, but, uh, you know, have that, oh, what's this kind of curiosity <laughs> where you hear about something new. What really struck me when reading about it is the type of qualitative research that it's kind of post is not a qualitative research I recognize. So the descriptions of coding that I've read are not a coding practice that I have. So I, I, I mean, I, I think it goes back to the point I was kind of making earlier is we need to be aware of our history and our context. And I wonder whether this approach 
has been developed with full knowledge and understanding of the richness and diversity of qualitative research in different contexts. Because I think a lot of what it's arguing for, for me, maps onto qualitative research that's already happening, that's already taking place. I mean, it seems very familiar to me with my sort of discourse and analytic kind of hat on um, that it makes a lot of sense. So it's not, it doesn't seem to be post discourse analysis. The descriptions of qualitative research, it seems to be post and more qualitative content analysis and some more positivist forms of TA. That's, that's the version of qualitative. It seems to be post. So yeah, and I guess it, it speaks to my frustration that as methodological scholars, we really need to kind of own the position we're taking and be aware that we're taking a position. And I wonder whether post-qualitative is defining what qualitative is in quite a narrow way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's my... It's. It feels like it's ever so slightly reinventing the wheel because there are already people doing that kind of work, but in different disciplines with different names and different terminology. So I guess one of my and Ginny's kind of, one of the things we're, we're trying to do is to try and map out where there are similarities, where there are overlaps, where there are differences between different approaches so that we can have conversations that are based on a better understanding of how methods or approaches are similar and different and that we can stop reinventing the wheel because I think there's a real in methodological scholarship there's a real drive for things that are new and shiny and sometimes things that are old and dusty are quite good, <laughs> are quite exciting, still have plenty to teach us. I mean, like Ian Day's book that I mentioned earlier, I think that's 1990. You know, that's a good, I can't count now, 30 years old. And that book's still exciting. It's still interesting. It's still got really useful things to tell us. So it's important to move forward, but don't discount all the exciting things that have been written in the last few decades. Sorry, that's a messy and all over the place answer. No, it was great to, to get those thoughts. And it's it's so new as well, PQI, that there isn't, it's still kind of developing itself, I think. And I still haven't read, and I haven't actually looked, but I haven't read a PQI research paper. I'm not sure if you've seen one and what it looks like and whether there's a method section and details the the coding and the analysis or whatever that takes place? No, I, I, I'm, as you say that, I realise what I've read is the methodological yeah. stuff and I ha actually haven't seen the, the, the product because I'm always struck by you have all this kind of fancy tra-la-la-ing, you know, this is what this is about and then you get to the end product and you think, oh, okay, that's not that different from that. <laughs> um, so I think we're very good at having a very colourful and exciting theoretical framing of something, but then the end product is is not that exciting or different or new or innovative. So, 
yeah, that will be, I'll put that on my must read list <laughs> to look at some empirical examples to see if they are exciting and new and different. Finally, if there were two or three tips, just sounds cheesy, <laughs> two or three pieces of advice, perhaps, that you would give to anyone that was going to embark on a TA study or a qualitative approach more generally, maybe moving from quant to qual or already doing qual, but wants to immerse themselves in methodology a bit further. Any any nuggets or pearls that you would give? I think number one is reflect on yourself, who you are as a human being, your social positionings, your assumptions, your values, how you think about research. And that's really, I mean, I'm talking about reflexivity, right? Yeah. That is, is hard. It's hard to do. It's only ever going to be partial and incomplete. It's never going to be, you're never going to have, you know, as a psychologist, I know we're never going to have full awareness of who we are and how we think. But start that way because then you're starting as you need to go on with this constant process of of self-reflection and questioning. So just like a diary, yeah. just keeping a reflexivity journal or research diary from day one. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful because I think reflexivity is the key to good practice in qualitative research. It's the key to all the things we've talked about, understanding the history of a particular approach, understanding the assumptions you're making, understanding how you're thinking about language, which is obviously crucial to qualitative research. All those are things you can start to kind of unpack and reflect. And it's such a good tool for having ideas and having kind of inspiration. Um, I did some analysis recently for a chapter that we're writing on on TA for the um, new edition of the Denzin and Lincoln Handbook of Qualitative Research. And I sort of was fitting it in around um, other things. And a bit sort of, you know, frantic and, uh, you know, when I got up and made a cup of tea that I was thinking about the data. And when I took a break to make some lunch, I was thinking about the data. And in those thinking moments, things sort of coalesced and came together. So I think the other thing as well as reflection is time. If you can allow yourself time, that's really important. And obviously, if you're doing a student project, your time is limited, but don't you know, if you've got a year, don't spend six months putting together your ethics application. Try and get it done in the first two or three months because you want the rest of the year to do your data collection. You don't want everything to happen in a panic and a rush at the last few minutes. You want time to think about your data because that's where depth and exciting observations and stuff that moves beyond the obvious comes from. So I think reflexivity, time, and you need some good sources to guide you. Read diversely, widely, and find people whose voices you you trust and give you confidence. Be wary of people making very definitive statements. You know, I like authors that acknowledge a bit of provisionality and tentativeness and and you know, I mean, we're associated with TA, but I've learned about lots of different approaches over the years. And I take so much from all of them. As an undergraduate, I was taught grounded theory. I found that really fascinating. And because I was a complete geek or nerd, I never remember which is the right one. You know, I read the whole of 
the discovery of grounded theory and the whole Strauss and Corwin Berkham. You know, you learn a lot from that and then, you know, learn about discourse analysis and discursive psychology and then a bit of conversation analysis. And then I was asked to teach about narrative approaches. I'm like, oh, I don't know anything about that. So you go off and read about, you know, you learn from lots of different approaches. So I wouldn't get too siloed into one approach or one method because you can pick up fantastic advice and tips from lots of different things. I mean, if you read any of my work you'll, and mine and Ginny's work, you'll know that we we discuss lots of different things because we've kind of, you know, you pick up gems from lots of different people and that gets worked into what we do. So, yeah, read, read, basically. Read a lot, read diversely, read, yeah, read across disciplines as well because, you know, I'm a psychologist. We have a very strong disciplinary identity, but I value the methodological scholarship I read in other disciplines, like nursing is amazing. It's such a wonderful source of qualitative methodological scholarship. I mentioned Janice Morse already and her editorials for qualitative health research are just a treasure trove of advice and tips and thought-provoking ideas. So yeah, so that's three very long-winded pieces of advice. I, I recently spoke to Fiona Webster, who's a sociologist and ethnographer in Canada, and she gave another really good tip just tagging onto your reading is saying rather than reading methodological papers obviously people should read your ta methodology papers but read ethnographies if you want to kind of learn about ethnography and and i think it would go it would be the same with people wanting to to get to grips with any qualitative approach to read the the studies rather than or in addition to the methodological papers you know to read what a grounded theory or an ipa study or a ta study or a da study what it kind of looks like, what it sounds like, what it smells like, what what it, what the outcome is in terms of findings and the and the sorts of language which frames those papers. Yeah, absolutely. Because you, as it, you know, I mentioned that sort of gap between the setup and the delivery are often sort of oh, this sounds exciting. Oh, this is a bit boring. <laughs> um, you need to see really good examples of what it kind of looks like in practice. I mean, I remember because I did my back in the day before. BPS accreditation was a bit stricter. I did sort of joint honours in sociology and psychology. So I read lots of ethnographies to learn about ethnography. And they were they were sort of fascinating and yeah. really, really interesting. And as you say, you kind of learn about the method from the the reading. And yeah, so I I would add to that and say find really good examples of what it is you're trying to do they might not be about the same topic or in the same area or in the same discipline but they give you something to to hold on to this is this is what I'm aspiring to and I do I have I sort of collect kind of gems of papers that do something really well and and hold on to those as good so you know students get fed up with me saying read this paper it's such Mm -hmm. a good example of what IPA looks like this is what you should be aspiring to Victoria, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.